Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Master of Educational Technology at UBC's podcast. My name is Dr. Carrie Ewart, and I am a lecturer for the Master of Educational Technology program, what we call MET at UBC, and one of the designers and coordinators for the Anti-Racism Speaker Series. I would like to begin this podcast with a land acknowledgement. As an uninvited non-Indigenous person, I would like to acknowledge that I work, teach, and we meet here on this unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Taylor nations. I acknowledge our traditional hosts and honor their welcome and graciousness to the peoples who seek knowledge here. As an uninvited ally and accomplice of this work, I'm committed to the ongoing research and self-education about Indigenous ways and to do the work of decolonizing in my practice. I recognize that the profession of education has profound roots in the colonial violence and acknowledge my responsibility as a graduate studies educational practitioner to meaningfully engage in the ongoing process of disrupting Eurocentric, hegemonic, and colonialist norms, systems, and structures by demonstrating the values of decolonization, anti-racism, by combating the systemic and sure of Indigenous peoples' values, ways of life, and knowledge, ways of knowing. Decolonizing takes time and effort, and my goal in my practice and within these meetings is to share ways to decolonize the work we are doing by pushing back against colonialist messages, power structures, and institutional structures, and giving priority to Indigenous ways of knowing. I approach this work as an ally and an uninvited settler to this land and reflect on the impact I have on the spaces I take up. Now, we are going to be introducing you to our guest today, Lori Townsend, but I would like to invite you, Lori, if you have a land acknowledgement that you'd like to share. Well, I just thank you so much, Carrie, and it's really lovely to be here. I'm honored in keeping with that sense of uh, humility and, and honor. I just like to acknowledge that I too am on Mississauga of the Credit territory. It's governed by a treaty by the Mississauga of the Credit and the Canadian government. And where I happen to be situated in Southern Ontario, it's also a site that has been occupied by other Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee and Wendat Confederacies from across Turtle Island. Thank you, Lori. Now, the Master of Educational Technology program, or MET, is a graduate studies program in the Faculty of Education at UBC that educates professionals on the use and impact of digital learning and technologies. Now, the purpose of this speaker series is to acknowledge the commitment that every individual has to inclusivity, to addressing systemic racism. With a focus on anti-Indigenous, anti-Black, and anti-people of color racism, this series seeks to identify the responsibility educators and leaders have to facilitating and supporting anti-racist approaches and strategies within their practice to enhance and transform learning environments and learning cultures. Presenters will discuss racism and tools to support equity, diversity, and inclusivity in the changing dynamics of the digital age. As a result, at MET, we are committed to a follow-up to each presentation of the speaker series with a call to action challenge. We invite listeners to make one change this month, no matter how small, and to share it with us as a next step to this podcast to eradicate racism through community building, education, and through the use of educational technologies. This call to action provides you the opportunity as a listener of this podcast to build on the anti-racist content from the session and make steps towards change. And we will provide you more details about this call for proposals at the end of this podcast.
Today on this podcast, we are featuring Lori Townsend, who is a multi-hyphenate, which includes her roles as a teacher, filmmaker, writer, and photographer. Lori's practice is rooted in critical literacy, social justice, anti-racist, and anti-oppression frameworks. And today she is joining us to speak about her experiences and how these roles intersect in both the classroom and within the storytelling spaces. Lori is ultimately interested in how our understandings of these frameworks impact our ability to show up. We are so happy to have you here with us today. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's really my honor and pleasure to be here. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your current role and responsibilities? Sure. Yeah. So as a multi-hyphenate, a self-professed multi-hyphenate, um, I'm really, you know, actually kind of proud to um, hold these identities, these intersecting identities and and roles in my life. Um, for 20 plus years, I was in the middle school classroom as an English and drama teacher, um, moonlighting as a filmmaker. And for the past year and a half, those roles have flipped. Um, and so in terms of the percentage of time I, I'm in the classroom versus uh, the percentage of time I am in the film industry making movies. Um, I'm currently on a leave of absence from the classroom, but still dabbling in education because I, I'm working as an arts educator at the Art Gallery of Ontario, the AGO, um, but I'm in the midst of finishing my first feature length documentary film. And that's been a film that's been, it's my feature documentary film is has been six years in the making. And so for a long time, I was balancing the the development of that, that film um, with full-time teaching um, responsibilities. And now that I'm on a leave, um, I call myself a full-time filmmaker. We're in post-production on this film. And um, I'm really excited about the, just, you know, where I am in my, in my professional life. Um, for a long time, these two parts of me, I don't think they ever competed. I, I, I like to think that they fed each other. Yeah. As a classroom teacher, I was very much involved in, um, you know, running film club and helping my middle school students, um, you know, sort of dip into their experiences and tell stories for the screen. Um, I, I ran film club for about eight, ten years and, okay. um, you know, had just so much fun being able to comp combine these two loves that mm -hmm. I have. So um, that's where I'm at. That's that's sort of where I am now in my life. Um, and it just so happens that, you know, working in film sort of feels like I'm working in a large classroom in some ways with the potential to shift perspectives, entertain and empower more than 30 people at a time, you know. Um, and so hopefully, <laughs> I'm thinking hopefully more than 30 people will see my film at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 pretty much my roles, my roles and responsibilities right now. That's incredible, Lori, and I love the fact that you were able to see that corresponding identity and roles and how you shifted and really you're doing what you love, it sounds, and congratulations on this first film. I can't wait to see it and we'll share it with all our viewers as well so that we can see what you've been up to for a long six years, I'm sure, but very excited for this to be done shortly. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Now, I read that you've claimed that your mantra is that you have as many hours in a day as Beyonce. That's really <laughs> interesting. Can you explain this to us? I remember at the time 
I was probably most likely in the midst of balancing um, my life as a filmmaker, teacher filmmaker. And it probably, that line probably came to me during the first week of school, like in September, because what um, for many years I had to contend with was this the reality that in the first week of September, school started. Mm-hmm. And it also happened to be TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival um, season. So I can remember many uh, September where I was obviously very much invested in um, planning my classroom and showing up mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as, as a teacher. And, you know, those crucial first days are, you know, every teacher will know, like you're, you're laying down the, found, the foundation for your class and the culture that you're trying to engender. And um, so I, I take that first week, you know, it's obviously so important. And so I would be teaching all day. And, but then because it was TIFF um, and, you know, I often had an industry pass, which meant that I was, you know, sort of um, in making an investment because uh, yeah. those indri- industry passes were never cheap. Um, I was making an investment in my filmmaking um, career and so needed to be at conference um, industry events or screenings and that sort of thing in the evening. So I was often, you know, teaching all day, getting to a conference panel or an event or a screening and then, you know, getting home at maybe one or two in the morning, getting up at six and doing it all over again for at least a few days um, during that first week. And so I just remember thinking like, wow, this is this is a lot. Um, but then, you know, at the time, you know, Beyonce was just, she was probably doing, I don't know, she's, she's a legend. And so there was probably something that, um, got me thinking about the fact that, you know, she's also just human. And, um, if Beyonce can manage balancing a mom, being a mom and a wife and a global phenomenon, maybe I could handle this intense couple of weeks. (laughs) Tiff, um, because we're made of the same stuff, me and Queen right. Bee. We're we're just uh, black women trying to, you know, trying to do our thing. So right. I think that's where that came from. <laughs> I absolutely love that and completely respect that. And, you know, I think within this day and age, especially post-COVID, everybody's looking for more hours in the day. Mm. The fun. And it's that importance of balance and doing what you love and everything. But good for you. And you got through it. I did. I did. It was not sustainable. I'll I'll admit that, you know, um, it was definitely not sustainable to have that kind of, um, to, you know, have that kind of energy output and to be able to, you know, we're going to be talking about showing up um, in vulnerable and um, compassionate and authentic ways. And sometimes you have to be able to really, you know, sit back, reflect and assess what practices, what daily practices are, are impeding, you know, or getting in the way of that ability for you to show up um, as your best self. And for me, lack of sleep is one of the first ways of depleting my, um, my capacity for that, for, for showing up. So I definitely feel like, you know, and, and that's something that a lot of us are talking um, more and more about women um, in particular happen to be, um, you know, the conversations I'm having with more of my, my community is around this idea of like sustainable self-care practices allow us to show up as our best selves. And that's mm-hmm. super important. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. My role is as the coordinator for equity, diversity, and inclusion with the MET program. And as a white person, 
I'm always looking to learn and unlearn and relearn and as an uninvited ally and an accomplice to work on anti-racism, EDI work, I'm wondering what can I do to help race relations? So many individuals wallow in guilt and self-flagellation, however, have learned that this has done absolutely nothing in terms of the progression in racism relations and helping to end racism, really. So in the work that you've done, what advice do you have to kind of move that talk more to action? I think about Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator, um, revolutionary, whose book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, talks about the importance of, and this term, praxis, Yes. which, you know, involves, it, it, it contains the idea of action, right? An action that is fueled by care and, and love. And, you know, for me, being in the classroom um, and showing up every day, I mean, obviously, like, showing up is an act, mm -hmm. um, is, is an act, I, I believe, an important act um, that really for the, the, the learners in, in my community, um, the ways in which I showed up with, you know, sort of like b being prepared to be vulnerable and being prepared to be who I was um, really allowed that culture, um, allowed my students to feel like they could show up and be who they were. So, I mean, I mean, sometimes we overcomplicate things. Like I think one of the first things we have to do is, is know ourselves and be prepared to show up as 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 ourselves, and that means having a, a clear understanding of what sort of um, privileges and powers you um, you have as as a leader in that space, and being prepared to um, set those things aside or understanding how they impact a learning environment. And so, I think the first act for talking about taking conversations away from just being conversations and, and moving into action. I think the first act is like the self-reflection that you do as an educator to understand who you are um, so that you can show up to spaces right. authentically. Mm -hmm. And um, that does a lot for um, creating an environment where people can be free, where people can learn. Here's the thing, like, I believe there's this really entrenched um, history, obviously, in our country, in the world. Um, a lot of our institutions are sort of steeped in this um, history, and we're not always prepared to, to reflect on where we've been. And so because of that, like, that reluctance to really understand our history, mm -hmm. I don't see how these structures are going to be... Um, dismantle. Here's an analogy. This is an analogy that has been serving me a lot lately. I've been sort of, I'm sort of halfway through Isabel Wilkerson's brilliant work, Cast, and the origins of our discontents. She doesn't really mention racism within the book. Her book is all about these caste hierarchies that really have governed all our spaces and, you know, that really form the framework for how much of the world works, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, this is really fascinating to me because, and it's also really instructive because she she's really, uh, she uses a, a, an analogy in, in the book, Cass, this idea that 
if you think about a house, if you have an older house, I happen to live in an older home. Mm -hmm. And when you walk into that house or you're looking to buy your for your house and it's an older house, you have a building inspector who comes through or a home inspector and gives you this report of all the problems, the potential things that this house is going to, um, the repairs that this house is going to need. Right. And Wilkerson talks about the fact that we don't ever, first of all, we don't sit there feeling guilty or, you know, I think you mentioned you know, the idea of being guilty or self-flagellating. We don't sit there thinking, oh my goodness, all these repairs are on us. Right. Sure, it is right. our responsibility to address them, but there's no sense of guilt like I've caused these problems, right? This roof that's gonna be needing repair in four years or this furnace that needs replacing. It's on me to address those as the homeowner. It's on me to address those issues, but it's not, um, I'm not sharing in the blame and so because it's not useful. Right. It's not useful for me to feel guilt about the the issues that this house is is uh, is facing, but it is on me to repair them, to make those repairs. And so I like to think about that when I'm talking about um, when I'm talking about anti-racist work because we're in these institutions that are really like old homes that have a history mm -hmm. of disrepair. There are things that are working in those institutions and things that are continually just, you know, causing wear and tear. And as the current occupants of that space, it's on us to attend to these to these 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 areas of disrepair or else the place is going to come crumbling down. Yes. And so we have to take action on the things that we recognize are not working about. The, the the areas that were that we happen to be inhabiting love the analogy because really there's so much talk about blame and guilt but really if we approach it and i think it goes back to the whole premise that you started with about showing up then we are identifying our own inherent biases we're looking at our own assumptions and really being open to um, possibilities of how might we go about repairing this you know, and it's not necessarily just a one person job, that it's something that as a community, we collaborate, we listen, we really kind of move forward from that, so that those repairs can happen. I do believe that it is really helpful. And I love the, you know, what you just added there, the idea that it takes, it takes many different hands. And, you know, I can't fix a roof. Yes. Um, but I can certainly, you know, reach out to my community of, you know, skilled trades, and I'm going to bring people into this um, this process of repair. Like it, it takes collaboration and it takes, um, you know, uh, understanding my limitations, understanding the things that I can and can't do and being willing to work with other people. Absolutely. That's amazing. Thank you. So now in the work that you do, you look at different acts of courage made visible through trauma or crisis. Um, now, how does this create resilience and design sort of that threshold for change when applying this to anti-racism lens within this context? Yeah, in my storytelling, I've certainly gravitated towards acts of courage made visible through trauma or crisis. Um, that's true because I'm, I'm uplifted and inspired by small and big acts of courage. Um, my first short film um the rail path hero 
was um, a film based loosely on my brother. I have two older brothers and my eldest is um, a former NHL hockey player and he's grown up in Toronto like me, born in Jamaica, um, came here as a little toddler with my other brother and grew up loving this game of hockey, um, being a black kid in North York um, in the 70s and 80s didn't see a lot of other um, black hockey players right that's changing now but um, I, I wrote a, a short film script loosely based on my brother's experiences growing up in this world of hockey and um, <clears throat> at the time I you know was reading newspaper articles about a hockey coach in Toronto I won't name his name but um, there were a bunch of survivors of sexual abuse at the hands of this particular coach. Survivors of, of sexual abuse in sport were coming forward and um, that was in the news at the time that I was writing the short script. So I sort of combined my brother's story um, of dealing with abuse. He didn't, thankfully, he didn't experience sexual abuse, but he certainly experienced other, other forms of abuse at the hands of coaches. And I combined his story with um, these survivor stories. And so in my short film, the protagonist is um, given a pair of ice hockey skates by this trusted coach. He's, he's on the verge of breaking, breaking through um, and uh, making a really important step towards his career in the film, has a big tryout coming up, and he has a pair of busted skates. They're completely um, unusable. And his coach, who has groomed him, um, has given him this pair of skates, a brand new pair of skates, um, and the protagonist um, has to make a decision because this coach is also violated and betrayed him in the sense that he's abused his position of power. And so this young protagonist in the film has these skates given to him by this monster. Um, and his act of courage, um, his, his act of ingenuity is taking out these laces um, from his old skates, laces that were gifted to him by his late father. They're crimson in color. His father had all this love poured into him and had this, um, you know, idea that he, his son was going to one day play for an Ivy League like Harvard. And so he gave him these crimson, crimson colored laces. So the protagonist takes these laces out of his old skates and puts them into these new skates, um, almost as a way of imbuing them with this um, love that his father had for him. And I understand that this is obviously not um, uh, any way of sort of erasing what has happened to him, but it allows this protagonist to step onto the ice um, and and step into his future as a you know a professional hockey player. These are the things he aspires to, um, and that's what I'm trying to, to say is that like through storytelling, I've been interested in how. Um, we as survivors of of different forms of oppression, abuse, um, just standing through the day, oftentimes we have to use ingenuity. We have to use um, different acts, small and sometimes really big acts of courage to get us um, to get us through. Um, but the problem is that sometimes in these conversations about resilience, we don't talk about the structures. We don't talk about the 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 conditions that necessitate resilience, mm -hmm. and so that's that's something that I always try to bring into the conversation about resilience. If that 
player, if that protagonist, that fictional um, character in my short film had certain supports in place, had the ability to go to someone else for, you know, a source of like resources and, and or social programs that would allow him to be, um, you know, surrounded by people who actually cared about him and not by, you know, predators. Um, those types of things need to be in place in order for us to feel safe, in order for us to thrive. Yes. And if we're not addressing the, those conditions, then we're really just sort of setting up our vulnerable um, young people and vulnerable marginalized communities to be even more marginalized and even more, you know, in harm's way. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And I really love that you speak to and have created a film on this. I'm hoping perhaps you could share the, if there's a link that we can mm -hmm. place, because it seems extraordinary, actually, not only were you dealing with and kind of addressing current issues, uh, but also very what hit home to you issues that your brother had faced, but then also overcoming those issues and really becoming empowered to kind of move past those systems of oppression and what you talked about before, that hierarchy of really looking at how we can move past that structure piece and empower everyone. So I love it. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, Laurie, would you say that there has been within your different roles that you've occupied and the combining and intersecting of those roles, a moment of yes, or finally, when you're considering the impact of the work that you do, and what it's had on that sort of anti-racism work, looking at the frameworks, and how that's guided what you've done? You know, sometimes in the classroom, the world is just moving by really quickly, and you're really, really busy, and you don't always have the time to, you know, sort of take in where you've been and and understand your your impact on on people, on young people in particular. In my case, middle school students, you don't always have that. And plus, you know, the the impact often takes time. It takes time to sort of show up in the lives of the the kids you're you're working with. And so one of the beautiful things about being <clears throat> one of the beautiful things about being a teacher for as long as I have is that um, my students, I'm old enough to now have student, former students who are my peers in this industry of storytelling, filmmaking. And the short film that I refer to, The Real Path Hero, I actually cast a former student, um, Stefan James, in that role. Um, I had been sort of following his career since he left my classroom and he was doing Degrassi and all these, you know, sort of local, um, writes message for young actors in, in Canada. And then he kind of broke out with a, a, a starring role in a feature film, um, Home Again. And uh, then he got, I mean, he's since become, you know, he's, he's a little star in the making. He was uh, the lead role in um, Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. He played in Selma. But before all that, he... He granted me the, you know, the honor of directing him in my first ever short film. And so, yes, he, he was the, my first example of sort of like having um, this ability to to work alongside my former students. And most recently, um, I've been interviewed on a podcast by a former student who is um, doing amazing things, Natalie White. Um, she has a podcast called Unapologetically Her. Mm -hmm. And I guess I didn't realize at the time, but the impact that I had as a Black educator in her life as a young Black girl, um, she was able to share with me 
the ways in which my presence in the classroom impacted her. And you just don't know these things necessarily, or not necessarily, um, you know, completely attuned to them when it's happening. But, you know, 12 years later, she's able to say to me, like, it was really important. But she was just, you know, really um, just generous in her, um, in her feedback and her, her joy just being in my classroom. And it was really, it was a moment of like, yes, wow, the intentions that I had in creating a safe space in my classroom, the intention that I had, particularly in the drama classroom where students are so vulnerable uh, to begin with, right? Like there's so right. much risk taking yeah. involved. And to know that I was able to create a space where, um, first of all, I showed up vulnerable. I was never asking my students to do things that I wasn't prepared to do, especially in the context of, you know, um, risk-taking and, and drama. And so she felt that and she understood that she felt free. She felt That's like amazing. she could be herself. Right. And it's so beautiful to have that kind of feedback later on in my career. So that's most certainly um, one of the beautiful aspects of being a, a teacher in the game for so long. Absolutely. And I think really what you're saying too is the fact that you've created this incredible environment and learning a culture for learning where people feel that they can take risks and try new things and be themselves and really learn who they are. So that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. So often good intentions are just the beginning, but there's a huge gap when it comes to what we intend and what we actually do. And I think that kind of circles back to the whole idea of action. So what are your suggestions to educators to help empower them to have these essential conversations with their students to ensure that the nuance and depth of anti-racist discourse is given what it deserves in order to elicit that change and move forward? And I think it goes back to Paulo Freire's work in starting with the educator and empowering the learner to mm. through that critical pedagogy to kind of move past those systems of oppression um, and start having those conversations towards change. And I think you mentioned the first aspect is showing up. Yeah, and I think you're right. Paulo Freire is all over this um, answer because there there's definitely, um, you know, there's something subversive about challenging, I think, what he referred to as this banking model of education, right? And mm -hmm. this is also in keeping with, like, as a media literacy specialist, we start by, you know, really believing and and um, owning the, the premise that students don't walk into your classroom as these empty vessels to be filled up. Right. Like, acknowledging that everybody in your learning environment is coming with lived experience and they're coming, they're bringing something to the table, something of value, right? It's not my job to be the sage on the stage filling up these empty vessels with information or knowledge. It's really about creating an environment where everyone feels seen and you're acknowledged for the lived experience that you are bringing, even if it's only 12 years of lived experience, you know, in the case of middle school, teaching middle school, 12, 13 years, um, understanding and, and acknowledging that um, is, is the first step because that's, you're seeing the whole person. And um, when, you, when you show up in that way and you're prepared to see the whole person, the conversations that you have, the dialogue that you have is rich. And 
it's it's also very very um, it's compassionate dialogue. Frere would say it's it's dialogue equals is love. It's it's love and it's practice. And I think like um, in the case of having conversations and 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 listening is super important because when I listen to my students, I'm picking up on the impact that I've had. Mm-hmm. And so intentions are one thing, but if I don't have a way of sort of like tuning into the impact, measuring the impact, yeah. for talking about an institution's ability to really understand how are we impacting the the people in this community? And do we have ways of measuring that impact? Yeah. So that we can have that feedback and understand what we're doing and whether it's actually having the intended impact. I think that's it's it's really important to have those conversations and to to understand that perhaps the most important part of the dialogue is the the part of listening. I think so as well. And that's sort of that active process, that active listening piece, that it's not so passive, that we're really listening and we're not ignoring race. We're not ignoring different identities, that we're truly listening to the needs of the students, of the learners, and creating this community where people are seen and heard and recognized and not oppressed further. So I love what you said. It can be built into practice of listening and um, sort of paying attention can be, again, it's it's part of how you set up your learning environment, right? Like I, if we're going to go back to the house analogy, um, as a teacher, like I may not own the whole house. I may, I, I can look at my classroom as a room in that house and um I have the ability to influence what happens in that classroom. I can, I have the ability to sit down with my students in that first week, understanding that like in those first days, yes, this is where we, um, as a learning, as a community, um, sort of set the ground, the, the framework for how we're going to move forward together. And there's something so liberating for students um when you sit down on the carpet you're sitting in a you know i had a beautiful big classroom that was carpeted and we were able to really like the physical space really lent itself to community building and and that's you know that's not a small thing Mm -hmm. there are so many classrooms that don't feel like spaces where you are going to do community building there you know hard desks and rows and all of those things are also, I mean, we're talking about how you, how we can take action. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just setting up your physical space with that intention, mm-hmm. you know, setting up that physical space that aligns with your values. And so having the ability to sit down with students and just talk about what's important to us and to talk about their experiences up to this point and, and to talk about how we want to go forward as a community in a way of, you know, um, making sure that everybody is included and everyone has a sense of belonging and everyone has a, a sense that they have something to contribute. That's really powerful. And you'd be amazed at how just like simple things like that can really um, make a difference. Um, as a teacher, I always stood at the threshold of my classroom. It was always really important for me to stand at the door mm-hmm. um, and welcome my students into the, my space. And they will, they'll tell you, like, you know, they would line up outside in the hallway and the idea was like, you would, they would, ne- I would never have students just sort of walking, walking and wandering into my classroom without me at the, at the door saying, I see you, welcome. 
you know? And again, a small act um, that had huge implications and that that same student that I mentioned who I spoke to who interviewed me for her podcast she's like I remember that you were always at the door um and it was an idea you know the idea that you know I see you and um you're wanted you are welcome in this space that's huge that's huge particularly for students young people who are often told by society that they're not welcome or they're to be ignored or they are to be, you know, um, shunned or feared. That's that's huge for, for students to feel that they are welcome here. Well, and isn't that what everybody wants? Exactly. Right. You're you're absolutely right. That's the beautiful thing about like this this practice of revolutionary education, um, whatever label you want to put on it, like what works for the most marginalized among us mm-hmm. actually works for everybody Absolutely. right and it it definitely um sort of has like a a trickle up effect i guess um when we we talk about addressing the needs of the most marginalized um in our communities everybody benefits i couldn't agree with you more and that self-awareness and that awareness of others is that propelling force well I cannot thank you enough, Lori, for joining us today for you've created such thoughtful, impactful and enlightening responses to addressing this um, pervasive racism. But what you did is in a way that it was so implicit and so natural and the way that we can propel this learning and discourse and change forward is so appreciated. You helped us unpack this anti-racism work and frameworks in a very clear and dynamic way. Loved your analogy of the house, as well as sharing your story about your brother and your first film that you created um, and designed was amazing. And I cannot wait to watch that. And I think really you provided us with a lot of food for thought and just even some best strategies and thinking of the way that we create our environments, um, both in the physical as well in um, the emotional space that we create, where everybody Mm. feels welcome, and how we can inspire change both in education and then beyond that. So before we started this presentation, we talked about that speaker series and eradicating racism through small and large steps towards change. And as such, we created a call to action to move the teachings and learnings that you've presented us here today in your podcast forward. So I challenge every listener of this today's podcast to participate in one act of change. This could be having a conversation with a neighbor or colleague about something that resonated with you from Lori's podcast, or it could be creating an anti-racism interactive activity for your staff, your colleagues, your peers, your audience that you might create as a subset presentation or podcast to react to the discussion that we've had here today and draw further awareness to this issue. We ask that you continue the conversation by sharing what you will do to implement the content from today's session into your own personal or professional life using the hashtag UBCMetAntiRacism. 
Now, when it comes to the availability of that impactful, culturally sensitive and relevant lesson plans or workshops that address anti-racism, there are such limited resources available for educators. So we're urging you as a grander gesture for any interested listeners of today's session to submit a lesson plan that aligns with the content from our interview with Lori Townsend with your curriculum in an attempt to create good quality anti-racism um, resources to put in the hands of educators. This call to action can be found at the MET website using the URL provided um, below this particular podcast. And I would like to, on my end, leave everybody with a quote from Nelson Mandela, that education is the powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And we are asking you to help with this change. No act is too small. Thank you to our guest for today, Lori Townsend. It has been such a pleasure. And I would love to invite you to add anything you wish before we end. Well, first of all, I just think that's a beautiful invitation that you just issued, Carrie, the idea that, you know, educators are being invited to share. And I mean, that is super important. Uh, there's nothing that I love more and that I'm one of the things I miss the most about not being in a school right now and in a classroom is that sense of collaboration I had with like minded educators, you know, and those sort of like think tank moments when we're deep in sort of in conversation amongst each other um, and sharing resources and sharing strategies. That's such a rich and um, powerful space to be in with fellow educators. And so I, I love that you have this call to action and that you're inviting educators to share their resources. It's, it's super important. I guess the last thing I, I just want to note is that showing up as your authentic, vulnerable self can coexist with being an authority figure. I don't, I don't think being an authority figure in a space necessarily means, um, you know, like there's a, there's a way of thinking about power that obviously is not um, oppressive. And, and I just want people and, and, you know, you don't necessarily lose face when you show up as a vulnerable person, you actually gain a lot of respect. When we show up as ourselves, we give permission for everyone else to do that. And that's the perfect environment for learning. Just like show up, um, own your, who you are, know that being vulnerable and, um, it is actually a sign of power. It's a superpower. <laughs> It absolutely is. That is amazing. Well, thank you again so much, Lori Townsend, for joining us. It was an amazing talk, and I really appreciate what you've added to this series. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carrie. 